1: dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp slash sacred text. So Casper, we are about to start reading Harry Potter Book Five, The Order of the Phoenix. The Order of the Phoenix. Is that a movie reference? That
0: is a voice I've not yet discovered who it belongs to. <laughs> Maybe it's Creature. I don't know.
1: Oh, okay. Fair enough. So Order of the Phoenix, I'm so excited for something that I want to ask you what you're excited about, but I just want to come out the gate and say it first. Do you want to say it at the same time? (laughs) Luna Lovegood.
0: Oh, I was going to say Percy Weasley's second year outside of school.
1: (laughs) Obviously,
0: <laughs> No, Luna is absolutely front and center of our excitement for book five. Luna just changes the whole dynamic of the friendship circle. There's something odd about her in the same way that there's something odd about Harry that no one else yet has shared with him. And it's so beautiful to see that.
1: So I've known you now for five years. The best thing that you have said in our five years is that you pointed out that Luna is the priestess mm. of the resistance mm. we'll see her in book seven tending to people and we just see it right out of the gate in book five when she's like talking to harry about death talking about seeing things that aren't there i just love the idea of luna is like the minister mm. of this series i am just so excited to spend time with her
0: yeah i think it's so interesting to look at her as a ritual designer and to look at the questions that she asks as meaning-making questions, right? The questions she asks are not functional and relational like Ron, nor are they inquisitive and intellectual like Hermione or even moral like Hermione. They're at this next level, which often is so far above or or different from the rest of the conversation that she is weird. She's countercultural. She comes in with belief systems that are certainly sometimes beyond kind of the scientific realm. But nothing is strange to her like she is comfortable in the strange so that anything that happens that's unusual to her is normal that's such a gift because when moments like death or 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 even ecstasy like that's where luna's at her most comfortable nothing phases her because she lives in this different realm of human experience
1: i'm just so excited to spend time with her what are you particularly excited about with book five
0: you know, book five is often the book that I think about as the most challenging book to me. Harry is in his screamy, angry Harry phase. Caps you know, lock
1: Harry. Caps
0: lock Harry. And, which, you know what would be interesting to think about looking at as a sacred text where the text physically on the page is different? What does it mean as a sacred text when they are all in capitals? We've never really asked that question before, so that might be fun.
1: Yeah, and it happens a lot. In the book, where you get script and you see Hagrid's signature, and there's a lot of different fonts used in the book. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think that that's a great thing for us to talk about.
0: You know, as as we're with Angry Harry or Teenage Growth Spurt Harry, I think we see the overwhelm that he's experiencing, the kind of emotional overload that he has, especially as he's targeted by Umbridge and by Snape. But now, There's this bigger pressure cauldron, right? It's not just the stage of Hogwarts in which his drama is being acted out. It's now really taking on national proportions because he's the kind of key witness to Voldemort's resurrection and is not believed. We had Rita kind of profiling him adoringly and then catastrophically in the previous book. But the stakes were just Harry's popularity. Now the stakes are, does the Ministry of Magic get behind his testimony, or is he seen as an unreliable character witness and, you know, an attention-seeking phony? The stakes, again, are higher for Harry.
1: Is there anything, as we read this book, that you don't want to lose sight of, that you want to keep in mind?
0: This is the largest book in the series. It's, it's the thickest book. And I think when we were younger and we were excited about the next Harry Potter book, That was the most joyful thing, you know, and I was disappointed in books six and seven because they weren't as big as five. But why is that the case? I want to know what is different about this book. What's important? What is it trying to say that it cannot contain within the pages? So I'm interested in keeping track of that. And I think especially as we think about the political ramifications of this story, the underground resistance, both at Grimold Place and within the boundaries of Hogwarts with Dumbledore's army. You know what are we being asked to do as we live in a world which, in so many ways, is recognisable in these pages? How are we standing up for what we believe in? How are we training? You know where where are the pillows on the floor and the the attempts at new expelliarmus charms that we are casting in our in our living rooms with our friends and neighbours. What are we willing to withstand to stand up for what is right? That moral message feels so clear in this book, I think. How about you? Is there something you're looking forward to kind of digging into or keeping track of?
1: I'm excited. You know, I've only read the books twice before, and I had never thought about Harry as experiencing this time through post-traumatic stress. Mm. And so I'm excited to have what I hope will lead to a tremendous amount of compassion for Harry. I've Mm. always, I was like, oh, this is the angsty Harry where he has a crush on Cho. And seeing it illuminated for me is he's just gone through a trauma. He is like having feelings. I think it's going to be really interesting. I liked your question about what does this book have to contain? And I'm excited to think about that given just how many words there are. (laughs) I'm excited to spend a lot of time thinking about how Umbridge views people like friend George, and whether or not I have compassion for her point of view or not, I can't believe it, but I have now worked in education for 18 years. Wow. And so as somebody who has, in one capacity or another, had students in my life for 18 years, I would like to think that I'm the kind of teacher who, when students are rebelling, find it important and charming and, like, twinkly, but— I'm interested in paying attention as to whether or not I will specifically have empathy for Umbridge when it comes to Fred and George. I know what I think about her relationship to Harry, but I wanna pay particular attention to the ways that Fred and George interact with her.
0: Are we going to perhaps see a blessing for Umbridge, Vanessa?
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm really excited to talk about her. I think that I have compassion for some of the things she does, and I don't know how far that will take me upon reading the text. With that in mind, but in the past, I certainly have, you know, when we taught the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text class, it was this hysterical moment where I started defending Umbridge and everybody (laughs) was like, Vanessa, do you know what you're doing? And it was, you know, it's something that you invited us to do in the second or third episode of this podcast, which was to see the Dursley-ishness within Mm. ourselves. And I think that I always want to be seeing the Umbridge-ness within myself because, I think that there is more relatable about her than we want to admit.
0: Mm. It's funny that you use that image of looking inside ourselves because the other big technology that we encounter in this book is occlumency and the idea of seeing into someone else's thoughts and them seeing into yours, particularly as Snape tries to teach Harry how to withstand Voldemort's kind of advances into his interiority. I'm interested just to think about some of the ethical questions that that's going to ask of us, especially. As we now live in an age of increased, you know, Facebook, (laughs) well, certainly all of the big tech companies, but also specific technologies like artificial intelligence and the advance of robotics and even voice command tech like and then moving towards like thought command tech. There's just such a whole new frontier of ethics that this book might help us with as well. So that should be juicy.
1: I'm also excited. I feel like at the end of book four, I came to a real place of compassion and appreciation for Snape. Mm. And I wonder if I'm going to be able to hold on to that seeing him back in the classroom. I think that we did, you know, see a great moment of bravery where he showed his Death Eater past to the minister of magic. Like, Mm. I just think that that is such a gorgeous moment that Snape does and is so brave Mm. And I'm wondering if my patience for that bravery is just going to evaporate the first time that we see him be awful to Neville. I don't even remember if he is awful to Neville. (laughs) I'm just like, Guessing that he will be, and that I'm excited to have that conversation. Like, is he still this sort of double agent hero when we're watching him just be a terrible teacher?
0: Well, and also to think about what are the parallels and the differences between the old guard coming back together in terms of the Weasleys and Sirius, of course, and Snape in this awkward alliance, and then with the younger troopers, they form Dumbledore's army. Like, what are the differences in how they are navigating strategy and relationship?
1: Casper, is there anything else that you're thinking about as we go into book five?
0: You know, we talked a lot at the end, certainly about the rise of Voldemort, but also the reaction from Fudge. And that's going to be a central dynamic in this book is the response of the ministry and the response of the institutional magical world to this claim that Voldemort has risen. And I I want to see the depths to which someone like Fudge and his allies will go to to maintain what is increasingly obviously not true, how we are able to tell ourselves stories where the growing facts and the growing evidence around us just, just cannot penetrate, and whether it takes a toll on us individually when we do that. And is there a cost to the essentially the lie that we choose to live over and over again? I mean, this is even casting further ahead, but there's this real eerie character similarity between Fudge and Slughorn, who we'll meet in book six properly, that's something I just want to keep track of as, as as well. Like both of them are cowards ultimately, but nonetheless they choose different sides.
1: Yeah. I'm also excited to see Quidditch reinstated. I
0: know, bring back the
1: Quaffle. <laughs> yeah, I like never cared about Quidditch, and now that it's been <laughs> gone, this book, and instead the entertainment that we've experienced is like life or death. I'm Horrible. Like,
0: bring me back something with a ball, something light, and Ron gets to play Quidditch. He gets to be on the team this book. So yes, hooray, Ron.
1: Yeah, and Ron, and Harry becomes captain. That's
0: right. Well, that was a foolish move.
1: <laughs> I mean. The thing that changes in book four, right, and it changes in chapter one of book four, is that we start to see people die. Mm -hmm. And then sort of famously, the next four books, it's like Cedric dies, Sirius dies, Dumbledore dies, Harry dies, right? right? right. So I'm also just wondering how having gone through this experience of Cedric dying and of meeting Bertha— how that's going to change just the tone of how we read even these opening chapters where we're going to spend time with the Dursleys and go back to Privet Drive we're going to see immediately out of the gate that it's a totally different world the dementors come and attack Harry and little Whinging. and so i'm also just curious about that to see how how Cedric haunts the rest of these books and how well we grieve him and how well we hold him in our heart as we continue to go through the rest of these books i think it's i want us to carry cedric i want us to be thinking about him all the time the way that i feel like now we think about Ginny all the time i want cedric to have been similarly written on our hearts and i hope that we are able to do that
0: yeah absolutely and you know, Looking back at Cedric and Ginny, there's also this really interesting notion of looking forward with this prophecy theme that's going to be really central. How do we know what futures are real? Is it better to know and not be able to change it or to not know? All of these kind of questions that we're going to engage with Trelawney's prediction and the, the kind of prophecy that Harry has to find and then the Department of Mysteries... I mean, it's a juicy book. I th- I think we've got plenty to talk about.
1: There's one thing that I want to add to this, though. Uh-huh. I am curious. We give so much flack to failed pedagogy at Hogwarts. We do. And I am really interested to see how defensive we get of Hogwarts when Umbridge sort of barrels in. If we're like, no, no, leave Trelawney. She's amazing. Right?
0: Well, i saying, there's a drunk old woman upstairs <laughs> who's overheating her classroom and sending everyone to sleep. <laughs> like,
1: risk. Maybe you're right that we should send her home.
0: Also not accessible to anyone who can't climb a tiny little rope ladder.
1: Totally not ADA compliant. I'm interested as to how Umbridge's presence is going to make us feel about Hogwarts, right? It's the way that like if somebody else insults your family, right. you're like, you are not allowed to do that. But I am. I am. <laughs> right. It's like Umbridge is like going to come in and insult our little Hogwarts. And I feel like, yeah, I wonder how quickly we're going to be hypocritical and how hypocritical we are going to be willing to get.
0: And how okay we'll be with whatever we choose. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm guessing we'll be fine with it. Hypocrisy for everyone. So we're taking next week off, but August 23rd, we launch with season five, episode one of Order of the Phoenix, and we are going to be reading that chapter through the theme of belief, and we're really excited. But before we say goodbye today, we want to share with you the audio for our video trailer for this season. We are really excited about this season's video. There was some heated debate inside the team as to who we should write it about, and we hope that you enjoy it. You really should go to our YouTube page, though, even though you're going to love the mellifluous sound of my voice, because our animator, Hannah O'Neill, is so darn talented, we just don't know what to do with ourselves. How far is too far in the pursuit of good? You are a woman in a man's field, and you have risen high. It's been work, There's the job itself, but then, on top of it, you've received insults about your voice, too high, the way you dress, too feminine, and your passions, too ugh, and you have stared incompetence in the eye, never raised your voice, and calmly asked your next question. And now you have your most important assignment yet, you are being sent in to help an institution in crisis. The man in charge is set in his ways and isn't interested in your ideas, which are absolutely necessary. But you've had to deal with difficult men throughout your career. You can handle this. You go in as you always do with a plan and a hope to make a difference. You knew what you were walking into in theory, but seeing it in person is shocking. This place is so much worse Than you anticipated. There is a literal insurrectionist army being risen beneath your nose, and all the regulations you put into place do not help. You let someone go who is underperforming and drinking in the classroom, and when you do, instead of thanking you, your colleagues undermine your decision. And then there are the children. You have dealt with chauvinists your entire career, and here you have been given one in the making a 15-year-old pig who thinks he knows better than you. The school has let him run amok. No humility, all brashness, and he is fear-mongering and spreading lies. He must be reined in. He must be taught that lying creates panic, which creates violence and can lead to war. He doesn't understand what is at risk. You've tried talking to him. You've tried leading by example. You've tried dealing with him in any number of ways. As have many of your colleagues, none of it has worked. So you do something a tad extreme. You know that sometimes you take things a little too far, but they have to learn, and your tactics are the only thing that will make a mark on them. You are willing to do the dirty work, if that is what is necessary, in order for peace and order to rule. You are Dolores Umbridge and Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. How far is too far in the pursuit of good? For more conversations like this, join us in Season 5 of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can find the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. One last thing this week. We wanted to let you know that we have a really exciting opportunity coming up this coming March 2019. The Reverend Dr. Matthew Potts and I are going to be leading a pilgrimage where we will be reading the Nobel Laureate's Kazuo Ishiguro's book, The Buried Giant, while walking through Japan. And you all heard Matt a couple of weeks ago on the podcast as he was talking about grief. And on this trip, he's going to be talking about the theme of repentance. And there really just isn't anybody better to be walking and reading and thinking about the role that we want forgiveness and apology and repentance to play in our lives and whether these things can only be felt or can only be enacted and what role we want repentance to play in our lives as we walk through the world. So if you're interested in joining us on that trip, please go to readingandwalkingwith.com where you can learn more and hopefully sign up. We hope that several of you will join us there.
0: So join us as we make our way through The Order of the Phoenix, book five of the Harry Potter series.
1: That will be launching August 23rd, and we will be reading chapter one through the theme of belief. Go to our website in order to watch our amazing new video by Hannah O'Neill, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Casper Tarkyle, Ariana Nettleman, and moi. Vanessa Zoltan. And we are a proud part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows, though not as great, at panoply.fm. Our music is, as always, by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And this week, we'd like to thank our fabulous intern, Amanda Madigan, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Paulsell. And of course, all 2,200 plus of you who donated to our crowdfunder, season five would not be possible without you, and it is dedicated to you, and we are so grateful and so excited.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: We'll talk to you all in two weeks. Book five, baby.
0: Bye, everyone.
1: I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and I'm Casper Takayel. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. There you go. It <laughs> is a British accent. I don't think it's Casper's British accent. Uh, uh, Casper does. Hello, mate. That's what he <laughs> sounds like, right? <laughs> I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and I'm pretending to be Casper Turkile too, because we recorded this pre-roll late on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.